Hello everyone, my name is Jordan Ernie, and I'm going to be discussing my research that I have done on old folks homes. Throughout this podcast, I will mention different acronyms and will put in the notes section of this podcast for you to refer to on what the acronym stands for if I mention it more than once. I primarily focus my research on old folks home post the Social Security Act of 1935, also known as the SSA. And I will provide a brief historical overview of what it was like to grow old in the United States before the SSA was enacted, what the SSA did for the aging population of the United States. I will also be discussing the person-centered culture change movement for nursing home residents that occurred in the United States and how it has been influential even in today. I also had the honor of interviewing my grandparents, Jim and Tucky Paxton, as well as their best friend, Beth Wilson, who live in a continuing care facility in Richmond, Virginia. And I was able to talk with them about their memories of their grandparents and their parents as they aged, as well as their own personal experience of living in a continuing care facility. I will also be providing you all with background information about that particular facility where my grandparents and their best friend live. I will also be providing you all with information about the nonprofit, nonstop corporation that owns their facility. My goal is to provide you all with a historical view and a contemporary as well as a historical description of old folks' homes. One thing I would like to really point out and emphasize is that every state is different in regard to their regulations and terminology used to describe, as well as historically, the terms have evolved over time, and I will often refer to them differently pertaining to the time, but it is also important for you all to know that there is no set term, and for that reason, I term old folks home as my overarching term. Before I talk about how the Social Security Act affected nursing homes and the aging population of the United States, I'm going to talk about the history of nursing homes before the SSA. In most rural societies during the colonial times, families actually cared for their loved ones at home until their death. However, in the latter part of the 1800s, due to an increasingly urban society, many families were often unable to care for their loved ones due to two factors one being a lack of space, and the other being that all family members, including children, were working six days a week and 12 hours a day. That is when almshouses began to emerge. Almshouses were one of the three major forms of colonial health institutions and were also referred to as poorhouses and a workhouse. The concept of almshouse was actually brought over by English settlers in the 17th century. Almshouses were publicly funded and established to care for those who were poor, indigent, or homeless. The conditions of many almshouses were deplorable, and the care that was often provided was done so by fellow inmates or even, in some cases, prisoners who were serving minor crimes. In the early 20th century, alternatives to almshouses began to arise. Board and care homes began to serve as the main alternative to almshouses, and they separated out the different populations that had previously been lumped together in the homes. Many aging individuals moved into board and care homes, where they could rent a room, receive a basic level of care, as well as have a couple of meals provided to them each day. However, prior to the establishment of board and care homes, women's and church groups began to establish special homes for the elderly in the early 19th century. 
These groups were particularly concerned that worthy individuals of their own ethnic or religious background might end their days alongside the most despised society, so they decided to establish early homes. It is also important for you to know that early homes generally required substantial entrance fees and certificates of good character. In the mid-20th century, rest homes began to emerge. Rest homes generally provided room, board, and housekeeping. However, they were not licensed as those residents did not require assistance with personal care. As more elderly residents aged, many became disabled and also required a higher level of care. That is when rest homes began to provide some basic services that may, that you may be familiar with what we think of in a society of as a nursing home or traditionally an old folks homes. Those services included 24-hour day supervision and personal care assistance with activities of daily living, also known as ADL, such as hygiene, dressing, mobility, and medication reminders. There were even additional services for skilled nursing care, like wounded care or injections. Um, home health care nurses were also increasingly utilized during this time. By providing these additional services in rest homes, they began to morph into assisted living facilities that required state licensure. In the 1930s, government officials accepted the argument that the rising proportion of elderly persons in almshouses was a sign that older people could no longer compete in the modern world. There was a government study done in the 1930s on the aging population, and according to this study, quote, the predominance of the aged in the almshouse is a sign of their increasing dependency, end quote, from the Social Security Board. Which, had, which was a huge arguing factor for the writing of, house, of the House of Representatives Bill 7260 that would soon be widely known as the Social Security Act of 1935. The SSA preamble says it is, quote, an act to provide for the general welfare by establishing a system of federal old age benefits and by enabling the several states to make more adequate provision for aged persons, blind persons, dependent and crippled children, maternal and child welfare, public health, and the administration of their unemployment compensation laws, to establish a social security board, to raise revenue, and for other purposes, end quote. Under the SSA, the Old Age Assistance, also known as the OAA program, made the federal money available to the states to provide financial assistance to poor seniors. This law also specifically prohibited making these payments to anyone living in public institutions, such as almshouses, which actually influenced the creation of the private nursing home industry in the United States. The SSA also played an important role in expanding for proprietary and voluntary nursing home by, pro by providing aged individuals um, who qualified under a means test with income through OAA that could be used to purchase personal and nursing care. It's also important for you all to know that the United States had never had an explicit coherent policy regarding long-term care prior to the SSA. The Federal Social Security Act stimulated the growth of the nursing home industry in the United States. Since the SSA, a variety of legislation has alternately, one, increased the demand for nursing home, 
to increase the demand of nursing or increase the number of nursing homes. Three, increase the reimbursement to nursing homes. Four, it placed controls on nursing home care. Five, it regulated nursing home care. And six, it created a confusing array of services, eligibility requirements, and reimbursement sources, which frequently create barriers to care, especially for the frail elderly who may have the most difficulty negotiating a complex service system. In 1956, amendments to the SSA created a new and separate matching program for medical services like, like nursing home services, and this program came to prove to be far more expensive than it was initially thought. The government became, became the primary payer for the aged nursing home residents. With the onset of FDA loans, construction of new nursing homes began to grow. Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to talk about the culture change movement when it comes to thinking about nursing homes. Before I dive into details about the culture change movement, I also want to highlight geriatrician and author Merle R. Gillick. Gillick describes her experiences and observations while caring for patients in a nursing home in her article, The Evolution of the Nursing Home. Gillick also uses her blog, Life in the End Zone, as a place where discussions about topical issues for anyone concerned with the final phase of life. I will talk some more about Gillick's blog posts later on. I do highly recommend Mural Gillick for further research on the aging population. For now, I will bring up how Gillick noted and emphasized that despite the nursing home culture change movement, which was in fact a grassroots effort that began around the turn of the 21st century, that most nursing home facilities remained steadfastly medicalized. And the grassroots culture change movement also advocated for care to be less institutional and more patient-centered. Um, Gillick noted that nursing homes weren't homey, and that was something to be profoundly wrong with them. As I mentioned, Gillick describes her experiences and observations in her article, and in that article, she attributes learning a lot about nursing homes to her first few months of working as a nursing home physician. Gillick discovered that the nicest looking facilities tended to provide the most mediocre care. The care of the nursing staff, which encompassed the nurses and nursing assistants, was actually what really mattered to the residents and families, not the fancy displays. Gillick found that the forms that she was expected to use to document her examinations asked all of the wrong questions. They were more concerned with things like heart murmurs and bowel sounds, and few, and few standard forms actually provided space for functional assessment, which is the determination of how well the patient could walk or use the bathroom or even feed themselves. None of these forms even had a section for advanced care planning, a discussion of the goals of care, and for documenting any potential treatment limitations. What did impress Gillick was despite nursing homes being profoundly limited in the type of type and amount of medical care it actually offered, and it was still nonetheless a medical institution, the residents were still in fact patients and nurses were constantly checking vital signs. Now I will be diving deeper into the culture change movement of nursing homes.
The culture change movement, as I mentioned, occurred during the turn of the 21st century and was a grassroots effort that began and advocated for care to be less institutional and more patient-centered. Um, the culture change movement also represents a fundamental shift in how the thinking of nursing homes occurred. Facilities are not viewed as healthcare institutions, but are viewed to be viewed as person-centered homes, as I mentioned earlier, that offer long-term care services. Person-centered care is promoted through reorientation of the facility's culture, which encompasses its values, attitudes, and norms, along with its supporting core systems. The movement as a whole spans almost three decades of consumer advocacy joined with legal, legislative, and policy work aimed at improving the quality of care and the quality of life in nursing homes. The culture change movement began in the early 1980s by the work of the National Citizens Coalition for Nursing Home Reform, which is a consumer advocacy group that was concerned about substandard care in nursing homes, and they emphasized residents' rights and the importance of resident assessment. Its consumer statement of principles for the nursing home regulatory system was released in 1983, and it was endorsed by more than 60 national organizations, and it was even presented to the United States Department of Health and Human Services and was distributed to all congressional offices. Later, the support of from Robert the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Healthcare Financing Administration, also known as the HCFA, HCFA, which is now known as the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, also known as CMS or CMS, and the associate the American Associations of Retired Persons, also known as the AARP. The coalition conducted focused groups to learn how nursing home residents themselves define quality. In 1985, the coalition actually published a consumer perspective on quality care, the resident's point of view, and it served as a reference for the Institute of Medicine, also known as the IOM, Committee on Nursing Home Regulation, along with the publication at the Coalition Symposium that was funded by the HCFA, residents told federal officials that quality of care and quality of life are inseparably linked and are equally important from the resident's perspective. Quality of care actually encompasses medical treatments that a resident receives, such as physical care routines, which includes assistance with bathing, using the toilet, and eating, whereas quality of life focuses on how one is treated, for instance, having one's privacy respected by others or having one's dignity maintained. In 1986, the IOM published Improving the Quality of Care in Nursing Homes, which recommended changes in regulatory policies and procedures necessary to ensure that nursing home residents receive satisfactory care. It also emphasized the nurse, the home part than the nursing aspect of nursing home. A year later, a bunch of nursing home reforms, known as the Nursing Home Reform Act, was incorporated into the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1987, also known as OBRA 1987, or OBRA. This law required that each nursing home resident 
quote, be provided with the services sufficient to attain and maintain his or her highest practical physical, mental, and psychological well-being, end quote. The law made nursing homes the only sector of the entire healthcare industry to have an explicit statutory requirement for providing person-centered care. In 1997, following the passage of OBRA 1987, several providers in Washington State, Wisconsin, California, New York, and Minnesota began to break away from the prevailing nursing home model. They began to create smaller, quote-unquote, households out of larger units. They also sought input from residents about routines and schedules, and they mainly tried to overcome the endemic boredom and learned that helplessness was actually quite common in nursing homes. These leaders, along with consumer advocates, researchers, and regulators, regulators met to articulate the common principles embodied in their separate models and to found an organization called the Pioneer Network. The network partners with CMS, CMS to explore ways to overcome regulatory barriers to, to culture change and to provide information to congressional staff on the importance of supporting innovation in long-term care. Eventually, the Pioneer Network took the lead in fostering the culture change movement within nursing homes. Today, the culture change movement with nursing homes' overarching goals are to individualize care for residents, making facilities more home-like and less institutional. They promote person-centered care through reorientation of the facility's culture, which, as I mentioned earlier, encompasses its values, attitudes, and norms, along with its core systems, by breaking down departmental hierarchies, creating job flexible or creating flexible job descriptions, and giving frontline workers more control over their work environments. They also strive to honor their residents' individual rights. They also offer them quality of life and quality of care in an equal measure. They also recognize the importance of all staff members' contribution to the pursuit of excellence. The culture change movement adopts a set of practices instead of offering a perspective set of practices or dictating conformance to a model. These principles actually encompass resident care practices, organizational and human resource practices, and design of the physical environment. At the facility level, journey is often used to describe the culture change with facilities progressing through different stages of change. Early in the culture change movement, CMS representatives, consumer advocates, and large trade associations actually found that the ideal facility would feature, one, resident direction, where care and all resident activities should be directed as much as possible by the resident, two, a home-like atmosphere, three, close relationships between residents, staff, family members, and the community, Four, staff empowerment, where work should be organized to support and empower the staff to help respond to residents' needs and desires. Five, collaborative decision-making enabled by management. And six, quality improvement processes where continuous care or continuous quality improvements would be comprehensive and measurement-based. The culture change awareness did did grow slow at first. In 2005, a Commonwealth Fund survey found that actually only 73% of the respondents were unfamiliar with the culture change movement. 
whereas in 2008, the survey was then repeated and 34% of the respondents were unfamiliar. However, providers did become aware of of CMIS's eighth scope of work contract with the nation's quality of improvement organizations. The contract specifically used the term culture change and required that quality improvement organizations work with nursing homes in each state, quote, to collect information on resident and staff experience and satisfaction with care and staff turnover by engaging in activity that is likely to improve organizational culture, end quote. These acts of recognition and promotion did did give the movement considerable legitimacy and made it virtually impossible for providers to ignore state initiatives, research demonstrating results, and the initiatives being evaluated. The federal government also designated the Public Health Service as the agency responsible for coming up with rules determining staffing and safety of nursing homes. Despite the culture change movement and the federal requirements, quality in nursing homes is actually still widely criticized. Research suggests an association between poor outcomes for nursing home residents, such as decline in functional levels and inadequate preparation for nurses, minimal training for nurses' aides, and too few hours of nurses nursing per resident per day relative to care needs. Most nursing homes are only home in, in their name and retain a distinctly clinical orientation. Quality of care problems, such as weight loss and falls, are quite frequently cited by nursing home surveyors. Before I talk about my interview with my grandparents and their best friend, I'm going to provide you all some background information about the continuing care facility, Lakewood, that they live in. Lakewood describes its facility as an all-inclusive continuing care retirement community that inspires active living and a healthy lifestyle. Lakewood is also a nonprofit faith-based community. It is owned and operated by LifeSpire of Virginia Incorporated, which is a nonprofit, nonstop corporation. LifeSpire of Virginia has owned and operated retirement communities in Virginia since 1948. Today, LifeSpire of Virginia actually owns four communities. One, the Chesapeake, located in Newport News. Two, the Culpeper, located in Culpeper, and this is the original LifeSpire community. Three, the Glebe, which is in Danville, and four, Lakewood, which is in Richmond. The mission of LifeSpire is empowering individuals with choices and purposeful living. Their vision is vibrant living where faith, wellness, and community flourish. Their values are faith, servant leadership, stewardship, integrity, peace of mind, innovation, and joy. Residents of Lakewood can choose to live in maintenance-free apartments, villas, cottages, or even hybrid homes. Residents, in fact, benefit from a ton of amenities and services that promote independence and optimal health. They also have full access to a full continuum of on-site care that includes assisted living, licensed nursing care, rehabilitative therapy, a special neighborhood for residents needing memory care, and an on-site clinic. They have 325 independent living residents um, that live in either villas, cottages, and or apartments, 74 private assisted living residents, which also includes memory care, and 96 private skilled nursing residents. 
As a resident of Lakewood, there are two contract options. The first one being the life care contract, which assures access to assisted living, skilled nursing, and the rehabilitation therapy services should needs change in the future. It also provides financial predictability since those levels of care are provided without substantial increases in their monthly fees. The second contract option is the continuing care contract, which is a one-time entrance fee and a comprehensive monthly service fee, which actually provides residents the same lifetime residency as life care with the financial freedom of not paying for short or long-term on-site assisted living or nursing care until those services are in fact needed or received. Um, residents also receive a 10% discount on assisted living and health services when they are needed. Residents have the ability to pay for their own for their on-site assisted living with existing long-term care insurance policies and or personal funds. My grandparents, as well as their best friend Beth, who I interviewed for this project, have this particular contract. It is important to know that there is no difference between continuing care retirement communities as well as a life plan community when it comes to Lakewood. Life plan communities are becoming a more commonly used term to describe a community that offers a full continuing um, continuum of on-site care if a resident ever needs it. And at Lakewood, if a resident outlives their resources or experiences financial hardship and are unable to pay their monthly fee, they can actually apply for benevolent assistance and loved ones, loved ones of the residents never have to bear any financial burden. As I mentioned earlier, I had the privilege and honor to interview my grandparents, Jim and Tucky Paxton, as well as their best friend, Beth Wilson, who both live at Lakewood in Richmond, Virginia. And they specifically live in an independent living apartment. I was able to talk to them about their memories of their grandparents and parents as they got older, as well as what their experience has been like of living in a continuing care facility. One of the most common themes that I took away from Beth and my grandparents was that families looked out for one another as family members got older. For instance, my grandfather's grandmother, Gaga, as she got older, went and lived with all of her daughters from time to time. All of my grandfather's family actually lived close to one another, so my great-great-grandmother could walk down the street if she wanted to stay with a different child of hers. However, nursing homes did exist during the time of Beth and my grandparents' grandparents, but it was just more common for families to take care of one another and move one another closer. My, my grandmother in particular had a brother named Bob who was seven years older than her, but he passed away in 1984 at 50 years old. And my grandmother talked about in our interview about how after my great-uncle Bob's death, that she saw a mental decline in, in her parents and a lot of the responsibility that would have been shared between the two of them as their parents got older fell primarily onto my grandmother. My great-grandmother, Bum Bum, was 78 and my great-grandfather, Big Dada, was 79 when their son, Bob, died. My grandmother talked about how she wanted to make sure that she found the perfect place for both of her parents to move into and that it was incredibly hard to convince them to move. Beth also talked about her parents deciding on their own that they needed to go into an old folks home. They wanted to be closer to her brother who was a doctor and when they 
And when they moved to an old folks home in the place that they chose, actually had an independent living and health care. Both of Beth's parents started in independent living and then moved into health care. My grandfather's father died in 1968 at the age of 61 by a heart attack, whereas my grandfather's mother died in 1997 from Alzheimer's and was in, in a traditional memory care nursing facility. When my grandmother's mother and father moved into their old folks' home in 1991, my grandmother described it more to be like a high-rise apartment. Bum Bum unfortunately died within a year of them moving to their high-rise apartment, and Big Dada moved into assisted living shortly after her death, and he lived five years following her death, but it took a huge toll on him mentally because, as he often described, according to my grandmother, she was not supposed to die within a year of us moving here. I also asked Beth and my grandparents about what they loved about living at Lakewood and being at a continuing care facility. They both agreed that the friendships and the camaraderie that they share was something very special. Their independent living apartment was built brand new, and so many people from my grandparents' church, Beth being one of them, moved in around the exact same time. My grandmother did talk about how it was definitely an adjustment at first, especially getting used to the quote-unquote alive button, as our family jokingly calls the button by their front door. It's a button that all residents in independent living are to press so that the staff know that they are okay and, well, they're alive. Um, if it is not pressed by a certain time, someone from the staff will come to check on them. Beth reiterated how she feels like with COVID and moving at the same time that she has been able to gain an additional family at Lakewood. And, and just like families back in the day looked out for one another, everyone looks out for one another at Lakewood. And I really appreciated hearing that, especially considering I haven't been able to see my grandparents very much during this pandemic. When I asked them for what advice they would tell people younger than them about moving to an old folks home, they collectively agreed that it isn't as bad as you might think it is. And being able to move into healthcare or assisted living if it is needed was reassuring, knowing that they won't have to completely move again. And considering the fact that both Beth and my grandparents lived in their houses prior to Lakewood for more than 40 years, I bet they definitely are relieved to know that they don't effectively have to move all of their stuff over again. By being able to interview my grandparents and Beth, it was such a rewarding experience because I learned so many new things about my own family that I had never known but I was also able to gain insight on their amazing friendship, and I also was able to provide insight to myself on what I hope for my parents and myself as I grow older. As I mentioned about my grandparents and Beth's apartment being newly built, it is important to know that prior to nursing home construction or additions where applicable, investors in a nursing home must obtain a certificate of need, need also known as CON, C-O-N. The laws vary state by state, but the CON process regulates, one, the investments in new facilities and new beds, two, investments in new services and equipment, three, expenditures for renovation and equipment to support or enlarge existing services, and four, creation of major new services or significant changes in existing services, 
the essential purpose of the con is to prevent unnecessary capital expenditures made by or on behalf of healthcare facilities, which are to be reimbursed by Medicare or Medicaid, and to ensure that the nursing home will be fiscally sound. With the completion of the physical plant, the permission to operate a nursing home is actually granted by the state licensing agency. Um, and it, usually the licensing division of the state's Department of Public Health. The facility also must demonstrate its ability to provide quality care for its residents, both in normal and emergency conditions. It must meet all healthy health and safety codes and pass Medicare and Medicaid certification requirements. And if such residents are to be admitted and reimbursement is also received. As I mentioned, Mural Gillick also has a blog titled Life in the End Zone, and I will be discussing three blog posts in relation to nursing homes. I will be discussing her blog posts titled Rating the Ratings, The Dignity Dilemma, and When Will We Ever Learn? In October of 2014, Medicare announced that it was revising the five-star the five-star rating system that is currently used to measure nursing home performance. Medicare would be using a nursing home compare website that allows consumers to learn how a facility that they might be considering going to compares relatively to others. It was being revised because prior, it was not clear that the vaunted rating system measured to anything meaningful. Gillick talks about in the blog post that in the summer of 2014, there was an investigative piece written by the New York Times dramatically demonstrating the gap between reality and ratings. The reporter of the piece visited the Rosewood Post-Acute Rehab Facility located outside of Sacramento, California. It was an attractive facility that had garnered the much-sought-after five-star rating from Medicare. Ratings in actuality focused on annual health inspections and on two measures reported by the nursing home staff, nursing home itself, one, staffing ratios and a quality of care index. However, the rating left out data from state authorities, even though it is those authorities that do in fact supervise the nursing home. Gillick also goes on and talks about the trouble the particular facility in California and that the state of California faced. Gillick brings up how nursing home compare is not the only attempt to come up with a single composite rating for medical facilities and that nursing homes are not the only medical institutions to be graded this way. Hospitals are in fact graded also. Gillick also talks about how we as an American society love to report, we love report cards and we love ranking and rating things, but she also greatly questions whether we as a society can accurately come up with a single report card for a nursing home and if we can really reduce performance to a single grade. Gillick also talks about the hesitancy of rankings for medical institutions like nursing home, and she brings up when colleges began to report their number of applications and number of offers of admission as a measure of selectivity with the U.S. News and World Report, but how it was used more of a marketing technique than actually used for accuracy. Gillick overall believes a single grade cannot capture all of the features of a medical facility's performance that are relevant to all the different individuals and groups for whom the ratings are intended for and that it is time to completely abandon composite ratings.
and I would agree. In Gillick's blog titled The Dignity Dilemma, she talks about a patient she once cared for that she refers to as Mrs. L. But she also talks about the Nursing Home Reform Act that publicized a Bill of Rights for nursing home residents that guaranteed the right to privacy and to be treated with dignity. Gillick also talks about how treating the frail, vulnerable, older nursing home residents with dignity is not a new challenge. In fact, since the 1970s, nursing homes have been criticized for, for failing to treat residents with dignity and respect. Gillick also brings up that nursing homes also face organizational challenges and regulatory challenges. Seamus dictates the terms of the state surveys that assess quality of care in nursing homes, but also understands that it's not easy to address quality of life as well as safety. Resident interviews are now a mandated part of the quality assessment that include questions about dignity and respect. On Gillick's blog, she provides a graphic of a sample resident interview question. Each question has three answer options. Yes, no, and not applicable. The resident is independent with activities of daily living. It is no doubt that we have seen how COVID has affected all of us, but more in particular, we have seen how it has especially affected the elderly population, especially of those in nursing homes and continuing care facilities or long-term care facilities. Gillick talks about in her blog post, when will we ever learn how COVID has hit residents of long-term care facilities in the United States the hardest than any other group. They have almost all of the known risk factors for being becoming seriously ill. By being unambiguously old, almost all have at least one or more chronic disease, and they are all living in close proximity to one another. Nursing home residents have accounted for one-third of the COVID deaths in the United States. Gillick talks about the lack of testing and PPE for causing its spikes and that it took us back to the days when we weren't properly caring for the facilities or the employees. Even though continuing care facilities have come a long way, there is still a lot to learn and a lot to come through. I would like to end this podcast with a quote by Gandhi. Quote, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members, end quote. In this case, the weakest members are the elderly, the frail, and the vulnerable. It is greatly important that we continue to learn more on how to make sure that they are ensuring a synchronous quality of life and quality of care. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed.